This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of the world-famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Dog. And wherever you get your podcast, we're also on YouTube, if you want to look at our beautiful faces. This is Dan Natterman. I'm here with uh, Peril Ashenbrand, who's looking somewhat non-binary today. <laughs> uh, more people have been watching on YouTube than uh, listening lately. Okay, well, uh, that's the way things are now. Those are the ones that I do by myself, though, Dan. Okay, um, that's the voice of Noam Dwarman. He's the owner of the world-famous Comedy Cellar. And uh, the ever-expanding world-famous comedy seller. Uh, no, I sent you a list of a guest wish wish list. Yes. Uh, so I just want to uh, know if you approve them. Okay, go ahead, quick, and and then e- email us podcastacomedyseller.com if you think any of these are good or bad. Go ahead. Well, I'm sure they'll like them all, but with it, this one's a long shot. I don't know. I think I think our our viewers are more and more like they want to see uh, like like they want to see somebody get their hat handed. Well, you can't them. have it. Every, you can't do that every week because no, what guest is going to come when it's like this is the podcast where you get your ass handed? Well, I had an idea that I was going to start just doing interviews with uh, people who don't in, who just um, are on the internet. Like I just take their videos and I can remove the background using like Filmora or something, one of these plugins. And then just find clips of them somewhere else, since they're afraid to talk to us, somewhere else saying stuff. And I'll oh. just pretend I'm, I'm, okay. I'm having a debate you know, with them. That, that could. I want. I want the guy. No, no one from the ADL will come to talk to us, right? I'm working on it. Yeah, well, that you know. So I mean, I, I want to take, take Jonathan Greenblatt. Yeah. Name, Jonathan. I just respond yeah. point and by I, point. And I just want to just like do a debate with him. But you're not helping me try to get somebody when you say things like that on air. Why? Why is that not helping? I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to be. We're on the same side. I, I mean, I, 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 I'm against anti-Semitism, obviously. I don't have anything. Um, well, I'm sure bad you, to say you, you about might disagree with some of his positions. Yeah, we might disagree a little bit, but these people, the the, the bubble is so deep. Um, people just don't want to risk uh, speaking to someone that would challenge them. That might challenge them even nicely. I'm not gonna like. What, I don't have any bad thing to say to him. Well, I think that's an excellent idea that you proposed. And I mean, that could be the kind of thing that kind of catches on because it's kind of gimmicky but interesting. And, <laughs> it would be and, really funny. And, 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 and a lot of interesting things will be, you know, will be discussed and brought out. You know, I think that is a good idea. Oh, I try. Anyway, my... my I don't need you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You <laughs> I don't even cut, need to call. Cut overhead. Yeah, I'd like to see how long you're going to last. I do my own that. editing. Yeah. You gave me the ideas. I edited a, I edited a, 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 a Twitter response for Yasha Monk uh, I guess it was yesterday, uh, where Brett Weinstein was calling him all kinds of names. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, and Yasha was right. So I went and I did some research and I found all the video clips. I just edited Brett Weinstein to show that Yasha was right. Go ahead. Okay, well, this one I think is a bit of a long shot, but uh, 90s folk singer Jewel Kilcher, better known as Jewel, is, is, is one of my guests. Why do you uh, want her? My, my nostalgia for the 90s is becoming unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and she is sort of the uh, focus of a lot of the, that nostalgia. Okay. Maybe we can get Tracy Chapman. We went to school together. Oh, okay. that might be a better. She, uh, she knows me. Go ahead. Next. Uh, Coleman Hughes, our dear friend. Uh, oh, who has, so let's let's give a plug to Coleman. Coleman has an article out right now uh, <clears throat> called um, "Why Is Ted Afraid of Colorblindness?" Or Ted T E D the Ted Talks people. Yeah. S- something along those lines. Um, it's an uh, expose of the way that even though they approved prior his TED Talk about colorblindness, they fought like hell not to release it. And in the end, uh, when they did release it, they kind of uh, shadow banned it in some way. It's got way fewer hits and views than 
other TED Talks, which obviously would be less interesting to people. Nothing is more interesting than race. And then, of course, Coleman's colorblind TED Talk came out just as the Supreme Court overturned racial preferences. So this was obviously a hot topic, and it has like one-third the views of like uh, Betty Crocker homemaking TED Talk or something like that. So I'm being facetious, but something like that. So Ted, so Coleman wrote an article about this, and it's um, being retweeted by a lot of people, including um, Caitlin Flanagan from The Atlantic, who's a solid, solid person. Go ahead. Well, anyway, he's also got a new book on race coming up very soon. Uh, Phil Hanley, our comedian here at the Cellar, has a book about dyslexia. Phil can't read or reads very poorly. Uh, and he's really good looking. So that, to me, is a fairly uh, powerful combination, I would think, for women. Like, oh, he's handsome, but he can't read. I want to help him. <laughs> Nicole, any, any thoughts on that? Well, how would that even come out? Because uh, his act, he's talking about being dyslexic. Well, for just a regular run-of-the-mill woman who goes on a date with Phil. How would that even come out? Well, you know, he, he puts it on the wrong side. <laughs> well, well, he can't order I'm, dinner. I'm saying for a woman in the audience at the comedy club, here's a guy on stage. He's funny. He's good looking, and he has this problem. And he likes the Grateful Dead. I mean, I would think for a woman, that's a very powerful combination. So I'm trying to read. I'm in third grade. I'm sputtering on the syllables. I can't read. She stops the whole class. She's like, Philip, if you can't read and you can't write, how are you going to pay your bills when you're an adult? Yeah, and I wish I knew then what I know now, because I'd just be like, talking shit about you. In the uh, eighth grade, I'm gonna go through all the grades. In the eighth grade, in the eighth grade, they tested my reading, and then they come back and they're like, you're reading at a first grade level. And I have no idea why they needed to be so specific and so cruel. I don't feel like they do that in other situations in life, you know? Like if you're a grown man and you go to get a physical, the doctor's never like, hey, you're in perfect health, but by the way, you have the penis of a nine-year-old. Okay, next. Uh, our friend Jonathan Haidt, who has a book out height. about... Height. Height. He's got a book out about um, how the younger generation is like the, the mental health crisis among the, the Gen Z people or whatever, the young people. I spoke with what, Mr. Haidt uh, um, and... He said that he would ha be happy to join us in um, November or December, and oh. I just followed up with him, although he was neck deep writing a book. So he Listen, was. He's, he's a friend of ours, kind of a friend of mine, and uh, but I want people I can argue with. Yeah, but you, <laughs> I, I okay. agree with everything he said. Uh, well, <laughs> fair. Uh, yeah, but that's not easy to always no, he, find people you can argue he's, with. He's fan he is, he's, uh, he's fantastic. Actually, there's a podcast we did like a long, long time ago where, about his book, The Righteous Mind, which I think was one of the. Um, the best podcast we ever did. And you, but also, you can bash people that aren't on the podcast with them, and, and in yeah. that sense, you'll be arguing with people that aren't here. But uh, Keith Robinson was a Netflix special. Keith, of course, has had two, not one but two strokes and still doing stand-up comedy. It's somewhat inspirational. Yes, uh, great one. And, and of course, SNL's Latin heartthrob, Marcelo Hernandez, who is a, works this club quite he frequently. He is fantastic. I is know he? Dan I know. hates that. No, I, I haven't seen him. But, uh, you haven't I, seen him before? I've seen him. He's a handsome young man. I haven't seen his act. No, no, no. He's not as bad as handsome. He is funny as hell. Oh, yeah, well, he may be, but he's also, uh, you know, he's also a good-looking guy. He's um, So that combination, Comedy I would Casanova. imagine, is, 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 uh, is, is also quite uh, powerful. Okay, next. What do you want to talk that, about? That's it. Anyway, a uh, couple things, a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, Esty gave me, uh, this Saturday, I typically get two spots, sometimes <laughs> one spot. I got three spots. Now, has there been buzz? 
She gave me three shows this Saturday. No, a veil's a very light. They, a oh, light, a light, okay, all right. I that. <laughs> because true. the truth of the matter is, is I have never been, for what it's worth, I've never been better on stage. Um, sure, does it matter? I don't sure know. You sure took your sweet time getting there. Hello, well, no, hello. I've always been, at least for 20 years, have been quite good. It's at least 15, 20 years. But I've, even at the tender age of 53, I'm still growing as an artist. And I, I thought maybe that had gone... That was noticed, but apparently it's just that everybody's out with COVID, apparently, um, or some other reason. But okay, um, that's fine. Uh, also, I was at a roofing. I well, our, our guest okay, is quick, here. Quick, Dan, quick. Well, I was at a roofing conference. I performed the roof. I thought that might be interesting. A roofing, yeah, they were roofing people. Like to drug girls? No, no, roofing people that put Not the roof roofies. on your house. Roofing in Las. Well, be the verb of a roofing. In Las Vegas, hi Ross. Roofing people. <laughs> yeah. I'm a comedian. I was talking about performing at a roofing con, uh, a conference in Las Vegas. And of course, the roofing business is really looking up. <laughs> but anyway, um, so you know, it's obviously an environment. There was not a Jew within a hundred miles of that. Well, right. it was on Yom Kippur, and it was literally on Yom Kippur. Uh, and so I tend to get very intimidated by this kind of environment. But uh, but a lot they, of real men there, huh? Well, it's just a v people very different than me, and you know, I'm worried that they're not going to like me. But it went quite well. They loved you. People they, they, you they, they not liked crazy me. about you either. They liked me a good, yeah, loved, you know, it's a word I don't use, I don't throw around, but but it was a very good show. One of my better corporate shows, because corporate shows tend to be quite difficult. Um, good money, Dan? It was good money, yeah. Good, good you money. said that there were a lot of puns. No, when I posted on Facebook, I'm doing a roofing conference, naturally everybody's like, oh, things, you're at the top of your game, you know? <laughs> so I said, well, it's tile and error. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, our guest is here. Um, did, let me. Did, were they all vaccinated? Did they have the? I don't know. Uh, the shingles, it was, it was, shingles vaccine. Uh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Ross, where do they go to the bathroom? Do they shit on a shingle? Anyway, go ahead, go ahead. That's a, that's an old uh, army for you know chippy chippy fun toast. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> my army days. Come on. Ross Barkin is joining us. How Ross? Hi, Ross. Good to be here. Very excited to be above the comedy cellar. Now, we met you online a couple yes, years ago. in the depths of COVID, so I'm very happy to have escaped Zoom, be here in the flesh. Ross Better. is a contributing writer to New York Times Magazine and a columnist for Cranes and Subst is Substack. He has a fantastic Political Substack. Currents. I am a subscriber. To, do, you, do you know I'm a subscriber? Yes, I saw you subscribe. Thank you. I'm yes. Um, I, hope that's, I hope that Substack does well for you. Ross uh, first came in our radar because he um, was very prescient about understanding that Andrew Cuomo was full of it, uh, while everybody, while, while women were throwing their panties at him, and every, everybody was in a state of like awe and uh, euphoria about this guy. Ross was uh, saying, "This the emperor has no clothes." As I was, that's why I was drawn to you. And we were how how right were we on a scale of one to ten? Eleven. Yeah, give give it eleven and a half. Yeah, <laughs> eleven and a half. And I like that. You you want to just recap that for people, or you want to? So yeah, I recap Cuomo. Wow, so so much has changed since I I think it was April of 2020 when I was on. I remember because it, it was around uh, around Rosh Hashanah. What is, I know it was around. Are you eight. Jewish? Yes. I'm oh, we Jewish. were asking. We were wondering. Go ahead. We wanted to make sure. Well, well yeah. I had already gotta, <laughs> I had already ascertained that with my Judah. Right. No, it's the Judar usually works. Some people think I'm Irish. I thought you were Irish. <laughs> people do. People do. Understandable. Um, 
So I, Noam was, I, I just found out my wife's Puerto Rican. So, right. Noam was uh, really excited to have you on. We had just started doing Zoom and I was still like figuring out how this was all working. But you were one of our like first real Zoom wow. guests, right? right? So Cuomo. So Cuomo. Cuomo was extremely popular and saving the world when we um, last spoke. Of course, he was not saving the world. Uh, many thousands of people were dying from COVID in New York City. Um, he made a lot of horrible mistakes, including sending COVID patients back to nursing homes, and then he covered it up and manipulated the data. For unrelated reasons, he had to resign from office because he sexually harassed a bunch of people. Allegedly. Allegedly, which I, I actually did not see coming, to be fair. I did not have Cuomo resigning over sexual harassment allegations uh, in my bingo card, but I thought for other reasons he probably should have left, and I do think... His other failures played a role in his downfall because I think a lot of politicians were willing to turn on him at that point because he had also uh, failed on, on COVID and courted scandal. But certainly the, the sexual harassment allegations were what broke the dam open and he resigned in August of uh, 21. And now we've had a new governor for two years now. Which is kind now, of crazy. now, people do make mistakes. And this was an unprecedented situation. And he made big mistakes. But do you do you have any forgiveness for him? Do you do you, what do you think? Where do you think the mis, what was the origin of the mistakes? Was it hubris? Was it arrogance? Are you sure that if you were in his shoes, you might not have made the same? Mistakes? I I like to think I wouldn't have. I do think hubris, arrogance. You know, he was someone who was plotting to write a book about COVID in 2020. He was, he was getting book advance money. He was having staffers work on the book so he was someone who's very image conscious i think in the back of his head he's probably thinking well one day i can run for president so you know i think certainly the manipulation of the data w w was a big part of it and yes I, I do think hubris played an incredible incredibly large role do i have forgiveness um Look, I'll forgive anyone, uh, mostly. W what I'll say is it was very hard to govern in that period. It was hard in everyone, but other governors weren't becoming national heroes and then lying and you know forcing their health commissioner to lie and, of course, the health commissioner going along with it. So I don't really forgive him because I do think while um, it was hard to be governor then, it was hard on everyone, the decisions he made even at the time were suspect. And there are a lot of people in 2020 questioning his decisions on COVID and the chickens came home to roost in a lot of ways. And I do think people view him with much more clarity now, which is a good thing. I mean, in retrospect, would you agree, given the fact that we know that basically everything equalized in the whole world, including Sweden, that it was just a matter of uh, stalling the inevitable in terms of the virus basically hitting almost everybody on planet Earth. In retrospect, and it's only in retrospect, the only smart policy that we needed was to determine who were the high-risk individuals, the old people and the sick, and do everything we could to isolate them until such time as we had medications or a vaccine. And everything else was basically a, a waste of time. You, you agree with that? Um, I partially agree. I, I think that's Only in retrospect. True. I didn't know that yeah. at the time. I think definitely protecting the vulnerable should have been a priority from day one. I do think the lockdowns and shutdowns, certainly nationwide in different localities, went on too long. New York did open its schools in 2020, unlike California. 
but um, it was difficult. So I, I do think like closing down parks was a huge mistake, chaining up open spaces. I think if you go back to the very beginning, Cuomo and de Blasio both dawdled on initially messaging around COVID and you saw less death per capita in certain localities like in San Francisco and Washington who avoided some of the worst waves because they had clear communication from the beginning. So I do think there probably could have been earlier interventions in terms of shutdowns, but I also think they went on too long. And I do think politicians did not understand the long-term impact, uh, did not want to understand perhaps the long-term impact on both businesses and on schools. Because I do think by later in 2020, we could have safely operated businesses. I do think school should have come back. And a lot of localities went, went on with the shutdowns far, far too long. And we've seen a real price paid for that. So here's a hot take. At the time... Everybody was worried that the lasting impact of COVID, uh, or everybody, everybody was worried what it would be. People as not prone to hysteria as Tyler Cowen, worried that comedy clubs may never come back. Everybody, you know, would we ever recover? People were saying, would we ever shake hands again? Would people, you remember all this stuff? Yes. But in retrospect, or that was not the long-term effect of COVID. I would say that the long-term effect of COVID has been a tremendous resentment and mistrust of so many institutions that we haven't recovered from. The lying, the, uh, the, 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 the censorship, um, the uh, hypocrisy, for instance, people getting furious that some kids were going to spring break in, in a beach somewhere and then a week later cheering when, you know, you had huge BLM protests, you know, like this kind of, with uh, people rationalizing it, scientists rationalizing it by saying, well, racism is a health crisis too. I mean, the most shameless kind of nonsense. And we haven't recovered from that. And it, it, this was a, a fuel on the fire of the already polarized population. In some way, it still fuels Trump. Um, what do you think about all that? I would agree. I think that the public health establishment has not reckoned with their failure. And I say this as a, someone who writes from a left perspective and who is really in a lonely place for parts of COVID because I was curious, you know, I was, you know, we were told at the beginning of 2021, once everyone was vaccinated, COVID would stop spreading. That was not true. You know, there, there's this idea that, you know, once one was vaccinated, they could not spread COVID ever again. And you can go back and look at how public health officials and scientists were talking about vaccination. You think they knew it wasn't true? I don't know. Not necessarily. I, I think they spoke. I think they spoke with a sense of certainty that was unearned based on the trials at the time. I don't know if it was malicious lying. I think the issue was they thought the public needed to be coddled and it backfired. I think if public health officials were very honest about COVID from the beginning and honest about the interventions and the treatments and were a lot more consistent, we could have gotten a lot further. I think back to masking, if you look at February 2020, there were prestige publications like the New York Times and Vox saying not to hoard masks, don't wear masks, they don't work. Then suddenly in March of 2020, wear masks, wear masks, wear masks. I think masks are fine but you saw an inconsistency there. 
Um, vaccines, again, the idea that breakthrough cases were rare, suddenly they're extremely common. First, it was, you know, one vaccine is enough. Then it's like, we'll get a booster every six months, right? If it was communicated from the get-go, look, we think this will probably work, but it will probably be something that older people should get. Younger people could get it. Um, but also, we don't know how COVID is going to evolve, so you're going to need maybe a booster another six months. You know, it, it, it could have been better than, no, this thing is the miracle cure out of the gate, and it will solve all our problems right away. And, and, it, and it didn't happen. And that was natural. You know, it was the, you know, you're talking about the Operation Warp Speed came you know, in the span of a year, and, and COVID was evolving. Um, but I, I think the, the false sense of certainty a lot of people spoke about COVID did damage. I think that the lack of empathy for parents who had to send their kids back to school. You have kids? No, I do not, but know a lot of people who do. And that was a really tough time and a tough decision for a lot of people. And, and you had, you know, sort of a, a, a militant side of, of the COVID debate that said, no, shut them down indefinitely until COVID stopped spreading. But we knew, you know, looking at, at the past, you know, the 1918 pandemic, it was going to spread and eventually it would become less severe. That's kind of how pandemics evolve. So given that, would it make sense to close schools indefinitely? Well, no, you have, kids have to go back. You know, we also start to see evidence that kids overall um, were safer than older adults. I mean, that, that was way, just it, factual. It doesn't have to spread and get less. It, it has, 1918 did that. And this Probably, probably has done that. Although it's it's difficult to tease out the vaccine and the medications and the and the uh, immunity that people have from having it's, had it from yeah. the actual virus. But a, a I, I did some looking into this at the time. I I believe that mutations tend to make a virus a deadly virus less deadly. They tend to, yeah. but it doesn't have to be that way. No, it, it can also mutate to get worse. Knock on wood, that hasn't well, happened. Well, well it, mu it can but, mutate in any direction. It's just w what the mutations that favor the survival of the virus tend to be the ones that make it less severe. Right, but for instance... Mutations are random. They can go in either direction. Right, but I think that I asked a virologist once, and she seemed to say, yes, that there's more combinations of a less dangerous virus than there are of a super deadly virus. Super deadly viruses are just rare. So the odds are oh, when there's a mutation, yeah. it would probably mutate. This is junk science, maybe. That was what she seemed yeah. to say. And, and, and I think, and I think for, for the record, I think the vaccines do work at preventing the worst outcomes. I think certainly older adults should be getting vaccinated. Absolutely. You know, younger people at this point, look, I mean, I, you hear, look, younger people certainly can. Um, I do think, though, you know, we're at a point where it's a lot less severe. So, you know, I think if, if you want to get vaccinated, like with the flu vaccine, you should get vaccinated. That's a good thing. Some people don't get the flu vaccine. I mean, I get it every year. Um, I think the You're thing the that Jewish boy, <laughs> I think the thing at the time that I was concerned with, and I wrote a lot about this in 2021 and 2022, is I, I was very skeptical of the vaccine mandates because I didn't like the idea of a person's employment being tied to the, their health decisions. I, I um, always viewed that as kind of a civil liberties and even left position, that this is something that a person shouldn't lose their employment L let over me, a, let me a vaccination decision. So I, I, I wrote at the time that I didn't think it was right to be firing public sector employees, for example, for not getting vaccinated. As far as the private sector is concerned, you were 
uh, less concerned with they they have the right to do what they. Oh, oh no, I I didn't like it either. Um, it's just that the public sector was something where the po- politicians had a say over it. So, in theory, my writings could have something of an impact there. But no, I I don't I didn't like. We never had a situation in. Certainly, where you know to get a job at a at a company, you submitted your health records. I mean, healthcare professionals is one thing. I I understood it more if you were a nurse or a doctor. I understood regulations there, but if you're going to work on Wall Street or going to teach, it never made sense to me that your employment was contingent on. Well, no, I'm your employer. This, this vaccine. Well, I, I want to get past history. COVID. I'll just say this yeah. and then move on. It made sense at first when we thought that the vaccine was shorthand for you can't get it and you can't spread it. Yeah. So if if you if and so I was very quick in making sure that every customer and every employee was vaccinated because that was supposed to mean a COVID-free environment. And therefore if somebody was immunocompromised or someone had to bring their children, I could present them with a safe atmosphere. As soon as it was clear to me that that wasn't the case at all, that everybody I knew was getting COVID and they were getting it from people who were vaccinated. Right. Then it was like, okay, well, ch- ch- you know, you got to change your opinion because right. it's a totally different scenario. And very few people are flexible that way to say, oh, well, I thought it was that when right. I thought this is, and now it's this. So now I believe I, I that. think de facto you've seen that change now where all the mandates have pretty much been dropped and no one has, interestingly enough, no one has really said anything beyond, I teach at NYU, actually came from NYU. They, this year, dropped all their, like, you don't have to show your vaccine status enter a building or anything like that. So it was very quiet. Quietly, it was acknowledged these interventions don't work anymore and it's time to move on. Though at the time, I remember when they were talking about ending these mandates in like 2022, someone would always say, well, now you're going to have a new wave of COVID and people are going to die. And it just, it wasn't the case. Biden said they're Neanderthals in Texas. They're going to die. I mean, anyways, you you wrote a really interesting column about the migrant crisis in New York City. I confess to, it's weird, like for people who don't live in New York, we're told we have a huge migrant crisis, but I will say as a New Yorker, I haven't seen it or witnessed it, and uh, that's the experience that many people I know have had, but I'm told it's real, (laughs) and I don't doubt that it's real, but it's just interesting that you can have a crisis of of supposedly this seriousness, this magnitude, and if nobody told me about it, I would never know. It's the end of the city. Okay, well, let me know. But um, you um, you don't believe it's uh, quite the crisis that they say it is. So why don't you give us your opinion yeah. of it? By the way, I want to tell you something. You are – I know that you're a left-wing socialist guy. <laughs> yeah. But I've yet to hear you say something or read your, written something that I was like, oh, my God, this guy's out to lunch. I mean, I, I know that there's certain fundamental assumptions that you operate from that I don't that I wouldn't agree with. Yeah. But it's just it's just very interesting that when even someone who's I'm not I'm no fire breathing conservative, but I'm way more conservative than you are. Yeah. But it's just I find it interesting to me always. When I meet someone very, very smart. who I know I don't agree with them on a lot of things, but they're very, very smart and they seem to be quite intellectually honest. You realize you're very close, actually, on a lot of things, much closer than you would think, because yeah. intellectually honest people, hopefully, in the end, they're both like, well, this is what I think, but let me just see what the facts are. Show me the data. And, of course, 
if I'm wrong about something, I'll adjust, you know, and yeah. that, there's very few people like that. But when you do meet people like that, it's you kind of recognize them. I'm just so curious ahead. what you teach at NYU real quick. So I, I teach uh, in the graduate program. I, I teach a journalism class. It's actually in the news and documentary filmmaking program. I'm not a filmmaker, but I teach them writing and reporting skills. So I'm uh, migrants doing that. Um, so migrants. Yes, um, it, it's an issue, you know, a crisis. Sure. It's a big city. I mean, I, I always remember, I think what you said is very true. And I feel like people outside of New York don't get it. You know, either if it's someone watching Fox News or just someone in California, you know, it's like, oh my God, like, are you overrun with migrants? Like, well, sure. If you go to like certain specific parts of the city where there are shelters, um, if you visit a shelter, sure, you would say, wow, this is kind of an issue. But, you know, we're a city of almost 9 million people okay. now. It's just we're down here in the village, right? The, the, you, you walk down the street. You can walk through most parts of Manhattan, and it looks like Manhattan. Or it looks well, like well Brooklyn. just for those of us who aren't maybe familiar with this, who are these migrants? Where are they coming from? Why are they coming in large numbers now? So a lot of them are from Venezuela. Venezuela is a country that has been in like this ongoing crisis um, under uh, Nicolas Maduro, the successor to Chavez, a lot less successful than Chavez in terms of keeping the country in order, put it that way. So Venezuela collapsing, big problem for a long time. Now you're seeing a, a lot of people leave, people with means, people without means, getting out, coming through Mexico, coming up to the border. You've seen Republican governors um, sending them north. I think some are now getting north on their own volition too. Uh, the word has certainly gone out that New York City will be more hospitable than Texas. So more, I believe, are coming here. It's been 100,000 since last year over the course of a year, which is a lot of people. But again, a city of eight and a half million people, 100,000 people, you see that walking down. But how would we notice? Day. I mean, we have a large Hispanic population anyway. Yeah. How would I know that there's a big migrant crisis? I mean, honestly, if you never read the news and didn't walk near a shelter or go near the Port Authority, go near certain hotels, it's not like COVID. You wouldn't know. I mean, I mean, that's the truth. If you didn't pay attention and didn't spend time near where they're coming through and near where makeshift shelters have been struggling to handle them, you probably wouldn't. I mean, that, that's the truth. It would just look like any other, you know. Now, the mayor says it's going to cost New York $12 billion over three years. Um, that's $4, $4 billion a year. Now, I just was trying to put that in perspective. The, the NYPD spends around $5.5 billion on its day-to-day uh, -day operations. Yes, it spends more in, in yep. debt and uh, yep. pensions. So that is a huge amount of money. And um, when somebody wants to cut the NYPD by $300 million or add $300 million to the budget, this is considered significant change, isn't yeah. it, you know, within city budgets. So an unexpected $4 billion in the budget I, I I have trouble understanding how it could be four billion dollars, but that's a real that's a real thing. How how is that a real number, and how do it, we deal with that? It's so it's it's real. It's a projection, but it's also projections can be toyed with. Um, Exaggerated pro projections don't take into account changing circumstances, right? So the migrants just got um, it's called TPS. Um, a special status. If you're from Venezuela, you can apply for work permits now. 
So you're going to be having a large class of people who are eligible to go to work, which means they'll be leaving the shelters because no one wants to stay. These shelters are not fun. This idea that people want to come for a free ride and stay in a New York City shelter is insane. You know, you get robbed there, you get raped there. I mean, it's not a good place to be. So these people want to leave and they're going to leave. They're going to get work. Some will move into apartments. Some will leave the city. Some may go upstate. There's a lot of farm work upstate. Some may just go to a different state altogether. So I'm skeptical of that number because the um, future is not clear. And I think now that they have work permits, they will become people who can be self-sufficient. You're just to tie things together. A lot of Hispanics in the roofing business. You go the roof. Yeah, I mean, you ha you have right now. You have you know a, an economy that can afford to take in a lot more workers. I mean, you know, the service sector struggling for workers. You know, you've got the agricultural industry needs people. Hospitality needs people. There's a big need for labor right now. There's a lot of people because of, you know, because of COVID, because of inflation, because of how wages have changed, like don't want to do certain work anymore, um, are changing their work habits. And now there's a need. So these migrants can meet the need. I believe Joe Biden really has to take the lead here make this uh, have a real federal strategy here. You know, I think there are parts of America that need human capital badly and migrants should be distributed. You no, know, Trump got in trouble for using that phrase, human capital. Remember <laughs> I, that? I actually don't know. Oh, yeah. You know, a, that was a bad he, one. Get canceled. It was, it, it, wow. Uh, people, people were beside themselves. Forgot. Human capital. Human ca Wow. That's kind of a very dry. <laughs> it's a generic term. It's a very dry, generic term, human capital. I mean, so, they need people, right? St. Louis, Detroit, Buffalo. You can name so many Cleveland, so many cities where neighborhoods have gotten emptied out. They don't have taxpayers. Well, let me, let me ask you a couple of questions. They need hardworking humans. Uh, one of the things that occurred to me and probably many other people when uh, Eric Adams was having the kind of panicked hissy fit was that for years when other states, at least as overrun as New York is, have been saying – we can't handle this. We don't have the resources. It's it's uh, it, it's it's more than we can handle. They were simply dismissed as racists. Oh, you don't want brown people there. Now I'm sure that there's always some element of people being racist. There's some element of what I would consider human and forgivable sense of like not wanting your culture to be drastically changed when you, with what you're comfortable with. I, I think that's not um, sufficiently respected. It's not an evil instinct. It's perfectly normal. The, the Upper West Side Jews, my people, who <laughs> complain about this ruthlessly when it comes to others, they do seem to migrate all to be around each other in the Upper West Side, right? So it's a very human thing. But anyway, and but to some extent, uh, I think we have to acknowledge that it couldn't have been all racism. It couldn't have been all because they were brown people because no place that has had to deal with this deluge has not lost their shit, right? But how brown are these Venezuelans that are coming here? Because Venezuela has a lot of white people, a lot of European... But let, let me just answer my question oh, first. Yeah, I, I, I can't answer that question. <laughs> um, what, I, what I'll say is that, you know, I don't think most... Straight mic, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Take two. There we go. I don't think most ordinary people are virulently racist. I think they like the way a town or a neighborhood is, and this goes kind of beyond race to kind of just, just how, how, you know, how it 
functions and then the functioning changes, you know, they get upset. You know, I think there are politicians who are racist or xenophobic or race baiting. I think there's a lot of them. But yes, there are logistical challenges when you have a big population coming through, particularly border areas that are not big enough to handle them. It's a lot. They do need help. And truthfully, New York City can handle this. I think one of my frustrations with Eric Adams and others are is you're the mayor of the biggest city in America. You're saying your city's going to get destroyed. It's like, wait a second, we had 9-11, we had COVID, we had Hurricane Sandy. This is not what's destroying New York City. You know, Maybe a nuclear apocalypse, but this is not that. So the idea that this city can't process migrants coming through, who, again, I'm not convinced are all going to stay here. Some will stay. Some will stay, send money home, try to raise families. Some will leave. They'll decide it's too expensive. They'll go to a town upstate. They'll go to, to Albany. They'll go to Massachusetts. They'll maybe head to Texas eventually. You know, they're they're going to move. Uh, that That's kind of how it works. And some will stay, but we're already a city of immigrants. I mean, we're an incredibly diverse city. So yes, you're concerned about the budget. You're concerned about social services. I also think these things can be managed because I don't believe the budget holes that are being projected are that large, particularly once they go to work. All right, let's do some rapid fire. What would you do to control the immigration problem at the border? Control the, at the border? Um, it's a good question. I have not thought hard enough about federal immigration policy. What I think is you can have stricter border controls, but also have a more rational immigration policy that makes it easier to legally become a citizen here. And I think it's very hard and unwieldy and I think there's not really a reason. There shouldn't be a reason for that because we're a nation that still has a lot of land, a lot of resources. We still need labor. We need high-skilled labor. We need lower-skilled labor, medium-skilled labor. So I'm someone who I, I do believe in a more liberal in the sense that uh, an immigration policy allows more people to come here. The border itself, I mean, look. We need labor and we need youth. Need youth too. We have a declining birth rate. I mean, that's a real thing now. So let, let, me, let me just say, I had a thought, you oh. know, I, I began to think that maybe the wall is actually the best idea. And let me, let me, t let me tell you what my thinking was. And you tell me wh where I'm, what's ridiculous about it. To control a border, well, first of all, to have a policy about who comes in and out, you have to control the border. You can't discuss who's going to come in and out of your house if you can't lock the windows and lock the doors. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a futile conversation. It's a silly conversation if... It doesn't matter what you say, they're going to come in anyway. So you have to, if you want to have a policy about who comes in and out, and I'm with you about being um, an open country, you have to be able to control the border. And to control a border, you need a barrier. And barriers can be people with guns, can be dogs, can be police, all sorts of things that are ugly and that will lead to horrible videos of inhumane things and people being hurt and shot and who, who knows what it is. If you need a barrier, and you do, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no, there's nothing else. You need a barrier. Then a wall seems to be the most humane thing you can have. What are you gonna have? Snipers? Like, like, what, what are we kidding ourselves? We're gonna invest in a half a million border guards and have them, you know, people taking selfie cameras of them rounding people up and dragging them and fighting with them and being abusive to them, which they will be, and. And I know we had this whole thing with Trump and the wall and whatever it is, but I, I woke up and said, well, you know, that seems logical to me. Where, where am I going wrong? 
Um, I, the logistics of actually building a full wall on the southern border, I think, are pretty challenging. From I understand that it, you've a ma- kind of a massive infrastructure project, though. I mean, assuming it can be done. If it can't be done, then obviously. But, if, it, if it could be in theory, I, I'd, I'd have to know like, like what the costs would be. I'd have to know how it could be physically done. I do think, look, there's a fair argument to say that other nations in the world don't have unchecked immigration. It doesn't happen. And it's not reasonable here to just have, you know, a completely porous open border. Like it, it doesn't make sense. You do need it secured in some fashion. The best way to do that, quite frankly, I haven't studied immigration enough. I don't write a ton of immigration policy, so I can't speak to it well where I'd feel good about it. What I do feel good about is you can't have an unchecked, completely open border. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't happen anywhere. Certainly in more so-called progressive nations, it does not happen. But you also need a policy that is rational that does make it easier for people who want to stay here and work here to be here. And that goes back to the immigration reform, which has been batted around Congress for decades and hasn't been done for a variety of reasons. The Republicans certainly don't want to do it. Um, well, they so want that's kind of where we are. Sanders, Sanders, your, your guy Sanders uh, filibustered it back in the early 2000s. Um, talking about the, the OS, which Bush's uh, plan. There was the OS six. I don't know. Did I forget a few? Fil- you had you had the Democrats were willing to do more border security and turn for immigration reform. Didn't didn't get done. But, but yeah, since then there hasn't really been much. But do, done. do you agree with me? This is not a. This is really not a position on immigration. I think this is just the logic that's irrefutable. That you before you can have a policy. You have to be able to control the border. Otherwise, the policy is just false. We're only going to let a thousand people in, or we're only going to let a million people in. But by the way, people just run over the border every day. That's not a policy. It, it, it's 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 a lie. You have to control the border. And by the way, along the lines of what you say about the migrants, if we did control the border, you would see very quickly, just like. Kansas voted to keep abortion, just like the, the, the Republicans said they were going to repeal Obamacare, and they didn't when they had the chance to do it. We need the labor. We need the labor, and everybody will they, – they, they, the second there were no immigrants, people would then start saying we need the labor. And you would see this issue, I think, actually largely come to a compromise because right now a lot of people don't realize that we need the labor. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you who does realize it, the roofers. I was talking well, to I mean, you, who is going to, the rich people, like the Republicans, well, actually Democrats are rich now too, but a lot of Republicans who have childcare, who have gardeners, who go to restaurants, who have all sorts of businesses, we need the labor and there's no, I don't think there's any reasonable fear that anybody should have that if we did control the border, America would have no choice but to have a pretty, open immigration policy because otherwise we'd go down the drain. And as I said, we need the youth and that's going to yeah. rear its ugly head too. Well, well can we start having more sex? <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. Well, maybe, <laughs> I mean, is, is it, you know, maybe we can somehow with, uh, encourage it. Well, with, the white supremacists are saying that every day. They, they want to. Well, but America, I, I'm not saying only white people should be having babies, but it, it, you know, is there a way to encourage, but, but, uh, you know, yeah, family no, more, more, more there is, I would say, more social safety net programs that make it much easier to have kids, to pay for kids, to pay for child care, to do all the expenses that comes with child rearing. 
more affordable housing. You can't mean mortgage rates are very high. Houses are incredibly expensive. You're talking about you want to raise a family of three kids and do it in a in a in a non-rural area, put it that way. It's just very expensive. And we're talking about raising three kids in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. I mean, you, you have to be well off now. I mean, you really can't be unless the problem I think with the system now is that vast middle gets lost because you have something of a safety net for the very poor. You have Medicaid. Medicaid's fine, but the threshold is not very high. And once you're out of it, you're into that enormous middle where you're struggling to pay for health insurance. You're not rich enough to just go pay for whatever you want. So I do think it's very hard as, as, as a youngish person. I know a lot of people who they like to have two kids, three kids, four kids, five kids. They like to get the house, they like to do all of it, cost money. It's Except a lot that of money. it seems all over the world as people are becoming affluent, they just want to have fewer kids. Some do. T- two ki- I have three kids. Well, Elon Musk talked uh, about that. He said, you know, it's our duty to have kids. He, he really loves to have kids. And I love, I would have another one. But I, most families I know, without regard to money, have one or two. And they can afford their third. And, they, and, and that's enough. But two is, you know, not really replacement. You need a little bit more than two to be a replacement level. And we need more than replacement level because we have that baby boom. We have to, we have, we need the youth to support the people who are getting old at the time when three and four kids was was yeah. typical. So yeah, you have a big you have a big problem where you have a retiring generation that's quite large, and then a younger working generation that's just a lot smaller. Yeah. It's so we need issue. we need we need immigrants, and I think with a uh, with a lot of policies, there's a lot of bluster, and people don't even understand what they're talking about, and then reality asserts itself as I believe it will, and it's beginning to with abortion, as it did with Obamacare, as it does quite often. And I think it would be, if they controlled the border, people should not worry that that would be the end of immigration. No, All right, no can my, I actually just yeah. very briefly address yeah. something? You said it's very, very controversial. It's also a talking point among white supremacists. That doesn't mean it's wrong, but it is one of their talking points where you said, you know, a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment is 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 because people want to preserve the culture of the I United States. I say a lot. I don't know what that number is, but go ahead. But some number of people yeah. that are anti-immigrant are anti-immigrant because they want to preserve the culture that they know. And it's a controversial position. I'm not saying it's a wrong position, but... but well, I mean, nobody wants their neighborhood rapidly to become Hasidic. So I think everybody understands in some way there is some level of, uh, like, you want to wake up and live in Chinatown. There's nothing to do with having any bad feelings about Chinese people, God forbid. It's just that you you don't know the culture, you don't know the language. It's just it's just well people but, people tend to gravitate but, but, and and at a certain pace, America's been very good at a certain pace of assimilation that it's it's the most beautiful thing about America. at a cer- at a certain pace, our cultures blend. we I mean, when I was a kid, sushi was something like there's an old odd couple episode where like raw fish it was so outrageous that people like oh my god it was like you can't even imagine and over time it becomes a ubiquitous food and part of everybody's culture and this is just a small example but overnight it it can't happen but what does this mean is that i think the logical extension of that argument is that there are certain immigrants that that should get priority if if the goal is is not to overwhelm the culture. I, I don't know, Dan. I I I, yeah. I don't. Um, I would just speak about the yeah. cult, the cultural aspect. I mean, I I take the position that 
you know, I don't know what American culture is. You know, American culture is this hodgepodge of everything. I think that's why it, it's great. It, it is so elastic and it does assimilate. And I think, you know, a hundred years ago, we were seeing levels of immigration larger than today. You want to talk about open borders, the people coming through Ellis Island. And that was de facto open borders that ended in the 1920s. I mean, that was that ended at a very specific point where the anti-Semitic, um, anti-Catholic sentiment at the time, certainly racist sentiment at that time was really being applied certainly to the, to the European immigrants coming through. You know, the fear that the white Christian culture was getting overrun, the WASP culture, right? And you saw a 40-year period of really restricted immigration, then it opens up again in the 60s. So, you know, for me, I, I think America has always done well with waves of immigration. I myself, as I'm sure all of you are all descended from Eastern European immigrants who came on yeah. boats out of po 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 pogroms. And I'm first generation, you know, two, two, two immigrant parents. Oh, wow. Yeah. My, I'm not I'm like I'm like fourth. I'm fourth generation. So I, I go back to the 19th century. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of culture, you know, for, for me, I, I do think if, if you're worried about American culture, so to speak, I do think that that's where you veer into, into racism and xenophobia. Well, but, it, but, but, but there is something I, different. I don't, I don't know about that I don't necessarily. Know, I mean, what, what it, is it? What is it, American it, culture? I don't know what American culture is, but I don't think it's necessarily xenophobic to want to preserve a given culture. Now, we can argue about what that culture is. I mean, if you went to Japan and all of a sudden... It was ninety percent Caucasians. Would it be the same country? Well, there, J Japan, and I, I was in Japan for the first time this year. Lovely place. I like Japan a lot. They're xenophobic. They're very, very. But but it wouldn't be Japan America, if it was all America. white people. It just wouldn't be. Dan, this is what I think. <laughs> would it? It's it is it was all no, white. It wouldn't. People. It, it it is human, <laughs> and it's it's at the nexus of racism and not race. The the the, the overlap. There, there is, yeah. There is hate for other people. And there is also the reality that people do feel comfortable among people that they have commonalities with, and and, and that that's how, like that could turn on an edge, you know. There's no question that the people in the 20s, as he was in that convulsive time, they were both racist and uncomfortable. And then over time, it seems silly. Look back at like what were they worried about? Because we all love this culture now, but of course we're all generations later. But having said that, we have no choice. As as we and and that is really at some point you have to say yeah. But you know what? What are we going to do? Like probably we need the, it, so we need it. And uh, and you yeah. if you fantasize about taking like more Europeans, I didn't say I fantasize about. It. I said that seemed to be the logical conclusion. Right, but they don't want to come here. <laughs> there's, there's no there's no there's no big numbers of 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 affluent people wanting to come to America. Maybe uh, so, I, I'm all for it. So, some so I mean it depends. There are. One, one thing I'll say is a sort of t tangent on the immigration side of this is something we need is a lot more doctors. We actually, we have a real doctor shortage in the United States, especially in rural areas. And something we could do is make it much easier for foreign doctors to come and practice here. We put up a lot of roadblocks. Of course we should. We, um, it, you know, I see, it's I not, see not those simple things. When I see the word universidades on the diploma in my doctor's office, I get nervous.
Yeah, but but the thing is, you should, so if you were, I, I, what's the I, matter with you? Well, I don't because a lot of times the people like they, they can't get into an American med school. They go to oh, like, yeah, but, but yeah, actually that's right. We, we don't Americans go to Mexico for medical school. But, but I'd also say conversely, like if you're on vacation in Europe or something, or even Mexico, right? You go to the hospital. Would you be terrified that that doctor there is going to like destroy your body or something? Like, no, they're professionals, right? Well, some countries are better than others. I, I assume. Yeah, no, there are. America doesn't have the best health. Running out of time. Can I make one other point? Yeah, what, what, what is different now than? Well, maybe it's not different than the 20s, but it's different than other times. And it's why I'm so happy that the Supreme Court uh, got rid of these racial preferences in universities. And I hope that that carries through and has a, a momentum. And by the way, it's interesting how few people are really upset about it, is that it always seemed false to me that we're going to take people from other countries. doesn't matter where they're from. People make... I don't actually like Dan's argument. doesn't matter where they come from. We should... I'm, I wasn't, it was your argument. You said people that want to preserve their culture ha, it, cannot it be dismissed. It, it doesn't matter where they come from. But once they're here, we're going to count them up and make sure there aren't too many Asians in, uh, in, in, in Harvard. And I think that those, there's a tremendous contradiction there. We have to be open to immigrants. And then once they're here, we have to treat them like everybody else. And I don't know if you'd agree with the following. I don't believe... That if there was a white ethnic group, Germans, whatever, who was overachieving the way Asians overachieve, that we would do anything about it. I believe at root it's because they look different. That if it was just a, if it was a white subgroup that had the same scores as Asians, I do not believe they would be segregated out and considered differently for admissions. I don't know if anybody disagrees with What if with they me. look like Marcelo Hernandez? Yeah, I, I think that it is it is racist at its core. And um, I always believed you could make the argument that we owed a debt to black America and that we should have certain policies or whatever, some preferences, whatever. I don't I didn't agree with that, but I understand that argument. I never understood the argument that we should start segregating, slicing and dicing beyond that. Asians and this and that. I think it's 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 gross. And it's not compatible with immigration because if we're going to take immigration, we need assimilation. And if we need assimilation, we need people to think of each other as other Americans, not as competitors in a zero-sum competition for jobs and, and university spots. That's That can't work. So in terms of affirmative action, I would say I think it started from a reasonable place where you go back to the 1960s and 70s trying to help a particular disadvantaged group. I do think it went off the rails. I do think it, you went you went to this very strange place of weighing all these different racial preferences, of, of doing these strange personality profiles and look, you know, looking at a certain application in a particular way. And Asian students were punished for it. So I have a lot of empathy for... The Asian student. Are you sure you're locked, left wing? Who's locked out of uh, who's locked out of education? But I mean, my, my my greater take is we shouldn't focus on Harvard so much. That that I would like to actually see more focus and investment in the schools that are actually educating American students in terms in larger numbers. So public universities. I think, I think public. That's what I, I I care about a lot more. Who who goes to Harvard? Was never much of a concern for me because it's three percent of the population. It's either going to be this three percent. That three percent, not about the population, that's who they admit. Um, it, it's an infinitesimal part of the sort of college um, college universe. So for me, I care about funding public schools better. 
I care Sunni, about Sunni. about teaching. I think the only problem we have in this country is that, Jews. <laughs> is that we are not properly educating children between kindergarten and sixth grade. I believe if we could keep all children on an equal level at the sixth grade, every other problem would disappear from that. And I think if we don't do that, there is nothing you can really do when somebody is getting close to high school that will turn it around and then equalize the number of doctors and lawyers and professionals of all races and whatever it is. Anybody who's old enough to remember the people they knew when they were young knows that the kids you went to school with who were fuck-ups or didn't do well or were, you know, came from difficult situations, whatever it was, if they were way behind in sixth grade, they are not doctors now. They are not doing well now. They're, they are struggling in some way. Of course, as outliers, as, but in general. And we try to do so much, but if I was in charge, I would try to drop all or many other things and just focus on figuring out how do we get all children to do the same in grammar school? I think that's our only problem. All right. Congestion pricing. Yes. Ooh, that's a good topic. And then we got to go. You're for it. Can we just yes. um, the no, listeners no, no, describe okay. what it is? Okay. They're, they're going to ten, tentatively in favor. Yeah. <clears throat> they're going to start charging people to drive below 60th Street? Yes. $20 a day. Hasn't been decided yet, but it could be, yes. Uh, Nicole, can you play the video that I... So on the way in... I, in, I, in order to in order to drive in Manhattan, no sound, Nicole. During rush hour, no. it's going to cost money. Twenty four hours. Oh, twenty four hours. But the, but it's cheaper at night. Yes, it, it, would, it would be variable. But again, the the tolling prices have not been decided. The idea is it would vary by rush hour versus non rush hour. Cheaper at night, more expensive weekdays. Okay, I, I just I just I just because this is the thing. So I just took like a little minute video in my car to to make the point that go ahead play it that I'm not seeing a lot of fancy cars on the streets of Manhattan below 60th Street. This is a very middle class, uh, and, and, I, and I did not cherry pick. I just stopped it and, and restarted when uh, these are Hondas and you know small cars. This looks very much like cars that people are, who have kids or who are working and getting around. Um, and, and it just goes on. We can just let it play while we're talking. So it's very clear to me that this is a really harsh tax on middle class people. Middle class people who have who have planned their lives around a certain expectation. I'm going to live here, I'll get a car, I'll drive my kids to work, then I'll go to the office. Every every office building that has rich people in it has probably two or three middle class people that serve in that organization, secretaries, janitors, whatever it is. And uh, nurses, orderlies, whatever. And these people cannot afford an extra $400 a month starting tomorrow. Um, that's number one. Number two, I have people working for me who are quite old. I have people in the late 70s, 80s who work in the evenings. They, they come from Jersey. They can't take public transportation back to Jersey at 11, 12 at night. They can't, I mean, it, it's, they can't, they can't afford it. It's, um, the subways are horrible. Uh, we have a, and finally, in the in the middle of Manhattan now, we're worried about a real estate crash because the buildings are half full as it is. Supposedly, we need to uh, congestion pricing, but 
um, this will encourage people to work elsewhere at a time when we need people to fill up these buildings. So from every angle, oh, and also it's 24 hours. In England, they stopped it at night. Also, it's supposed to be for pollution, but they don't care if you drive a fully electric car. It's obviously just a money grab. From every angle, I think this is horrible. But most of all, listen, I, I make a good living. I'm happy to pay the extra money and not have to deal with traffic if that's the way it works out. I park in a garage. Um, I don't say this arrogantly, but it's really, you know, it's going to roll off my back. But the people who work for me, the people who work for me, this is horribly unfair. I can remember my, my lifetime, people freaking out about the suggestion of a 50 cent toll on the Brooklyn Bridge, 50 cents. And now they want to hit people with $20. So you're for Anyway, it. I have a lot to say about congestion pricing as well. But we'll certainly let Ross take the lead. Congestion pricing. It's actually boy. in my wheelhouse, congestion. And there's a long tweet thread here. I'll send it to you. I don't have time to read it. About a guy who's for who's just, and he's, he's really, it's interesting because he, he goes, he thinks it through, and then he's coming up with all the problems, but he's still for it. He's like, bridge over the River Kwai, you know, he's like still for it, <laughs> but it just, it doesn't work. He's talking about this highway doesn't work, and this this Ross, uh, mass transit doesn't work. And Yeah. Ross, you say what? So I, I think one thing that has to happen with the congestion pricing is you shouldn't double toll people. So there's something I am concerned about. You shouldn't what? I'm sorry. Double toll. So th double. this idea that's being debated where you're paying a toll already. If you're coming to New Jersey and driving, you pay a toll. You come through the Holland and Lincoln Tunnel. You're coming. I live in Bay Ridge. You come in through the Battery Tunnel, the Hugh Carey. You pay a toll, right? The new tolls would be coming in from the north, or coming over, you know, the Brooklyn Brooklyn Bridge, Manhattan Bridge, uh, Queensboro, and then entering below 60th and paying. So, I do think you shouldn't be double tolled if you're paying a toll already. I do think that's enough. Um, and and other congestion pricing, you know, transit experts agree with me. It's not like an unpopular opinion at all, or an opinion that people in that world would disagree with. I do think it'd be a mistake if you're going to hit someone coming in from New Jersey. Lots with, of people agree with, with you the about. Holland with the Holland. Uh, with the toll they already pay in, in the Holland Tunnel and hit them again. I think that'd be a mistake. If that happens, I'd agree with you more. What do the great transit experts who, you know, really don't know anything, what, what I'm saying that, I don't mean to be... Yeah, like, they, like, they know some things, but it, yeah. So, so I, why do, you're asking why are they doing it? Why like, do they what, what do they, what, what I, I think it's clear they're doing because they just want to raise money and they've, they've up to here with taxation and, and so this is a, a rationale. They, they don't really want people to stop driving into the city they want everybody to drive and pay the toll well a, a, a transit i'd say a, a transit ex someone who cares about transit policy and public transit wants less people to drive and the hope is with congestion pricing it will incentivize the use of public transit and get it won't get it back up uh, can i have because its subways are horrible and they're, they're not they're okay they're not hard i, t I take them a they're lot they're, they're 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 okay they're not as good as as in terms of dealing with issues down there it's not 2019 but it's also not an apocalypse it's actually okay if most of the time you I'll ride a train if you, you'll be if, fine if you have a job where it's convenient if you live close to it if you have the if your hours are right and if the if the walking in and out is not horrible to wherever it is that you're working like work at nyu and somebody right here you get the yeah. west fourth right that's here. good it's very convenient but there are many people who have opposite situation and they planned on that when they chose where to live and where to work and part of that plan was they're going to get a car and this is where i'll park and this is my budget 
and to upend all these people. I've never seen any policy in my lifetime that cared less about smacking people over the head. Nice people, people haven't done anything wrong with a sledgehammer, $400 a month. I've never, ever, it's unprecedented to see the government contemplating that kind of cataclysmic effect on middle-class people's lives. I, I just, I, I'm dumbfounded by it. Go ahead, Dan. Well, uh, some of the things that I think are positive about congestion pricing, assuming it can, first of all, uh, emergency vehicles, uh, when when traffic is heavy, just don't move. Now, if we can make traffic lighter, we can, that, that can be helpful there. Uh, I also liken it to, you know, in the old days, you couldn't get an exit seat on the airline unless you were just lucky. Now you can pay to get an exit seat in, on, a, on an airplane, and it's great. Those who want it can pay for it. Those who don't want it don't pay for it. Yeah, but people have to go to work. Yes, but they have options in terms of how they get there. They don't. That's the, that's the lie. Well, if, if public transportation could be improved. Well, that they should improve it. Well, that's, I think, the goal, to use no, this money to improve, improve public transportation. First. Listen, what, Elon Musk, who everybody hates, his great insight about the Tesla was don't make people buy it because they want to help the environment. Make it awesome, and people will naturally want to buy it. If public transportation was convenient for people, they would take public transportation. By the way, less traffic immediately makes buses Okay. More convenient. Okay, but wait gonna, a second. Gonna, wait listen, a you're, second. You're a young man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bet you a thousand dollars. I might take. And also, that, people that ten that after ten years of congestion pricing, okay. the subways will be absolutely no different. Number one, and number two, the schools will be no different as well. Public, I can throw in this public schools school. because the failure to fix the subways is a failure of will. They don't want to. They don't want to crack down. They don't want to do the the. It takes a t tough man to make a tender chicken. It is not easy to make the subways fit and clean and nice. And they it, did it, they, though. It was done. It was better. They're, they're also not that... I'm, the, the, I mean, they're me, the, not that great. They're not great, but I think the, the, the subways, my, my issue with the subway, obviously, you, you have a crime issue. But you're, you have a young, a you're a young, able-bodied guy. Right. Well, there aren't enough elevators. That that's a big issue. The accessibility, the lack of re the reliability uh, compared to European transit. I, I, I was going to get Biden credit that his infrastructure package is supposed to build a lot of accessibility for things like for subways. We need a lot more elevators. Um, the, I I agree with you in that the public transportation has to be made better. I am very sympathetic to that point. I've long said. We have a big problem in New York and in the United States with building out transportation infrastructure. They do it in Tokyo. They do it in London. They do it all across the world very easily. We don't do it. We should have new subway lines. We're not They're getting not going them, to. and that's true. Look, look at, you saw that story in Los Angeles. They, they had that high-speed rail. They spent billions of dollars. Yeah. They haven't laid one track. And Florida, I know we all hate DeSantis, but in Florida, much poorer state, lower taxes, they did it. I am pretty sure New York is going to be more like Los Angeles, a typical blue state, than it will be like like a red state. I, I, on this I can't, kind of thing, the red states. I would better. not. I agree, and I would not bet on the MTA. What I would say though is the idea of lessening traffic and congestion on the streets is a noble goal. Yes, and 
incentivizing people to get out of their cars is a good thing. Now, what the tolls will be, I don't know. That hasn't been decided. It will vary. It will vary peak it shouldn't off. Shouldn't be on the back of the middle class. If they really want to do it, charge everybody more taxes across every New Yorker. If this, this is, it's not as but if would that get people out of their cars though? I don't think this is going to get people out of their cars. Well, what is the experience in London and other places tell us about congestion pricing and how it it's been? I, I have to study it more, but I think it, it's been. Well, a lot of what a lot of European cities do, truthfully, that New York could do, but this might annoy people, is just start pedestrianizing more streets, like right, Times that, Square. That's right. That's doing okay. a full pedestrianization of the urban core is something European. But cities somebody do. made a very important point to but me. They do. Which London doesn't get as cold as New York. We have months in New York where it is horrible to walk outside, and for people above a certain age, it's inhumane. Right. And they're the ones who can't afford the congestion pricing. This is a crazy idea. I don't know. I, I don't know That's why. That's where you get more people onto buses, too. That's the thing, improving the bus. Buses take forever. So you got to have five and traffic. If there's less, less, traffic, less traffic, the buses move better. Get, no problems. So you didn't like getting up at 630. Now get up at 530. My, my grandmother took the bus in Montreal, which is much colder than New York, into her 80s. Right. I think that native New York. And maybe we can we subsidize. I am. I am the elderly or those in need. I just want to. We we have to go. I just want to make the, the the point clearer. If we do need to do something, I just don't think it should be on the backs of the middle class. The rich people will pay the congestion pricing. They're not going to change anything. The only people who will be forced, and this is what we're trying to we're trying to make it so expensive that you have no choice but to upend your life and do the stuff you clearly don't want to do. Because we are going to charge you so much money that you have no choice. We're your government. We're your fiduciary. We love you. Well, th this, That's, no is this not the way a government does it? The way a government should do it is either spread it around, I, I, I don't know, or, God forbid, really try to improve, you know, get some more subway lines, really bring public transportation to everybody's door in some way so that people want to do this. Th charge a little bit of a toll. What they're contemplating is, in my opinion, it's a bunch of politicians who don't drive. Who a lot of politicians, politicians do drive. Actually, you'd be surprised. A lot of them get because they get you get the plates. You can park illegally. Well, so or, or, or whatever it is. <laughs> what I'm saying is that I don't. If this, if the skin off the nose of the people voting for this uh, approached the skin off the nose that the middle class people are going to have to go through. They would never vote for this. That's that's all I'm saying. It, their ox, in some way, their ox, the people who are implementing this, are not having their ox gored, and they're going, they're, and they're going to do this to the to other people. And I just think it's horrible. And I've yet to hear a, a good argument. Well, uh, this notion that you brought up about people expected to be able to drive easily into the city, or not easily, but at least without paying congestion pricing. And, and this is upending their expectations. It's an interesting argument. But, of course, if we extend that out, then you can't make any changes. Well, they've I mean, faded, in over, you, faded in over 10 years so people have a chance to, 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 to adjust Okay, for. Okay, but that's not an argument saying congestion pricing is bad on its face. That's an argument about the implementation. I, I think it's bad on its face. Are people supposed to pay an extra $20 just to go to a, 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 a movie in New York or a, a Broadway show? Who, I mean, at some point, people run out of money. You take the subway or the bus. Yeah, but it's yeah, listen, I mean, I don't know if you're if you're aware of how many people come from outside of Manhattan. Yeah. And how the further you get out, the less and less transportation is actually available yes. to you. Yes. 
it's going to it they're also playing with fire in terms of what impact it will have on the engine of New York City, I, which is tourism I, and business. Don't, they don't know. I don't completely disagree with you. I do think this was a policy that was passed originally before COVID. Yeah. And I do think the impact on the urban core, that's a real concern. It's something I've written about where we're not talking about 2019 New York. We're talking about a slightly different New York and how that will interact with that. I can't say for sure. I do think we have to get cars off the road. I do think this is a way to do it. I do think there are risks. I also, like I said, I would view it more positive, positively if you're not imposing the extra toll on people who already pay tolls to come in. If you do that, that's it's going to get a lot tougher. And start I, I small. And, you know, there might be a laugher but, curve, as it were, of, of uh, raising but, revenue. But, ha- but it would re- it's rational, though, to, if you're going to toll the battery tunnel and toll out from the, from the Hudson River bridges, tolling from the east side makes sense, too. It, it's strange you can toll hop like that right now, truthfully. Yeah, well, toll hopping is a kind of congestion pricing. <laughs> Sort of. It just it creates congestion in the neighborhoods. Cars have to drive it's through. A, the rich people always come out on top. You know. Well, yeah, and, it's good to be rich, well, but, but that's but nothing also new. The notion of the rich people, you know, be able to, the, the the if they get what they want, and all the middle class people are taking the subways and the buses, and the rich people are driving into work and unfettered in their big cars <laughs> with no traffic. That's not a nice look either. It, it, in it, you know, like, is that, is that what but we close our eyes and that's what we want? Middle class people we want don't in like, New York where only rich people. Middle class people don't like sitting in traffic either. It's, it's, it's a soul destroying experience. Well, what does that tell you? And I, it tells you that, like, you, you think that $20, like, people sit for a long time, a horrible in traffic. To me, that says they really need to drive. Like, like that's an interesting point. Yeah, but like this is an obvious point. Like it's so awful to sit in traffic. Yeah, I don't Wouldn't know why that be enough did. to get you to take the subway. Like that's worth a lot to well, sit in traffic. Well, that's an interesting. What Ross, you say what? He agrees with me. Is it enough? Is the soul destroying traffic enough to get you out of your car? Yeah. I mean, why isn't that enough to get people out of their car? Because it's because they really it's not convenient for them to get out of the car for whatever it is. It's outweighed by the fact that they need to drive their they need to drive their kids to school in the morning. They need to go pick up groceries. They need to park. Some people have jobs that they need to get around. The, the, the subway's not near. It's cold. They have a bad back. There's a million fucking reasons why people drive, and that and we know that's true because otherwise they wouldn't sit in traffic. An interesting point. Interesting I, I, point. We need to. Uh, I have to mull that. I I, I I do. I do think money though is uh, money more than traffic will incentivize some people to leave their cars. See, and some people it's the so. opposite. So, and some people it's the opposite. I, some people won't sit in traffic for any amount of money. You know. Yeah. Speaking some of soul destroying, like as long as we're discussing transportation, you know, uh, uh, flying is just it's just it it is absolutely horrific. Um. What about high-speed rail in America, Ross? I think definitely I, I would love to have it in the Northeast Corridor especially. I think we would be ripe for it. You know, you go, again, go to Japan. They have great high-speed rail. You can cover a six-hour drive in two hours. It's wonderful. They have a huge fare-jumping problem in Japan, you know. Do they? I'm kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but what they have is they have much better gates. You you can't jump it because they have gates that actually really keep people out. So, but also you're going like, to like let me ask you this, Ross. In Paris, we got to go. Can I just ask one quick Europe, question, yeah. Ross? Yes, yes, you can. Is if it's a choice between uh, a what? How does how what? How's the the flight to Chicago? That's two hours. About would a choice between hours. a two-hour flight to Chicago or a six-hour 
High-speed rail trip, which do you choose? Would it be, uh, probably would be about six hour, uh, d- would depend, I mean, I, that's where I think the high-speed rail in America makes the most sense for like the Northeast Corridor, California, part, parts of America. I Most people would probably choose a two-hour plane ride over a six-hour train ride. I would probably do the train. I like trains, but I think most people would fly. But I do think going New York to Boston to Philly to D.C., you can run run a high. Well, we already kind of have that. I mean, it's but it's not-, not fast and it's it's crappy. Amtrak's terrible. If you go to Japan, you'd be doing New York to Philly in thirty minutes. If you were, if you were running on the Shinkansen, they call it the bullet train. If if you had that style of train, you'd be getting to Washington in forty five minutes. That's how that's how you'd move. Philly would be a real commute. We have to go. Anyway, I, I didn't quite find where we differ. I'm pretty sure we differ on rent control. Yeah, but, I definitely but, support. But we have, rent we have to, we have to go and rent stabilization. But yeah. maybe uh, we we can come back and we can debate rent control. <laughs> and, and maybe we should have we should have an epic debate. And before we do it, I'll send you my uh, articles. You send me yours, so we don't so we don't so we don't. Um, you know, I I don't like when you have a debate. And somebody pulls out a fact. Well, I, I don't know if it's true or not true. Like, like I, I like to have everybody dealing from the same set of facts. It's a better way to debate. I would like to say, in yeah. conclusion, I would take the six-hour train ride. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Ross Bark. And podcast at ComedySally.com, once again, is our email for comments, questions, and suggestions. What do you think of Ross Bark? And I thought he was a good guest. Maybe you disagree. <laughs> I hope you do. He's a great guest. Did um, he- yeah. I just wanted to make sure his Substack got mentioned. Substack. We mentioned it at the beginning. Yeah, I know. What, what's the name of your Substack? Uh, it's a political current. So if you search you know, rossbarkin.substack.com. I'm also surprised he lives in Bay Ridge. I thought for sure. Term from. Yeah. I thought outer for borough. sure, like, you know, a more hip place like Williamsburg. Bougie. No, not that. Bougie. bougie. Yeah. You seem bougie to me. Outer, outer borough. NYU professor. Anyway, thank you for listening. That is all. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.